Hi, this is The Gathering Church in Windsor, Ontario, and I'm Pastor Garth Lino. Welcome to our podcast. Jamie read from Galatians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, just a moment ago. We should read this passage with great fear and deep gratitude. This passage actually takes us back to a meeting that took place in Jerusalem, which may seem quite distant from the concerns of 21st century believers like us. But in fact, the stakes could not have been higher back then or now. And the outcome could not have been more important in that meeting. It was a meeting that had huge implications for then and also for us today. So let's have a look. First of all, we're going to explore Paul's fear and why he went to this meeting in the first place. He says in verse 1, Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation set before them, though privately, before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. So in verses 1 and 2, Paul is still talking, he's still writing autobiographically, like he has been in the previous passage. And he moves us to a time 14 years earlier when he and Titus and Barnabas went up for this special meeting in Jerusalem. And why did he go? Well, it tells us that it was because of a revelation externally. God had given a revelation, but also for fear internally. One version says, I went because God showed me I should go. That's a good reason, you know. God shows you you should go, you should go. So externally, there was this call of God, this revelation of God, a reason for the meeting. But internally, it's a different story. And the New American Standard Bible brings out a little different nuance in verse 1. We have a look at, at this from a different translation, where Paul says, I submitted to them the gospel which I preach among the Gentiles, but I did, I did so in private to those who were of reputation for fear that I might be running or had run in vain. And I think that's the right sense in the verse. Paul's anxious. He's, he's fearful. He, he's worried. I think he went because he was worried that his ministry might be stifled by the Judaizers and the false teachers. Remember, there was a group there in Galatia that were insisting that these new converts in Jesus Christ also adhere to the law of Moses and get circumcised. He was fearful that his ministry might end up with very few results due to a lack of unity. And and that's a little bit current, isn't it? Lack of results due to disunity in the church. Nothing was threatening Paul's certainty, but something was threatening his fruitfulness. And there's a difference. Paul didn't need to confirm his own gospel. Uh, He needed to confirm that the uh, the other apostles in Jerusalem agreed with him and that there was unity among them. 
And I think there are a couple of implications that we can extract early on in the message from these first two verses. And first of all, there's the fact that, that Paul went up to Jerusalem by revelation. That tells me that Jesus himself wants us to confront ideas and people who threaten the unity and fruitfulness of gospel-centered ministry. If we're going to be biblical people, then we need to be a confronting people to some extent. We need to be willing to confront false teaching and any distortion of the gospel. Am I right? That's what, that's what he's been doing in, in, all through Galatians chapter 1. So if we think that somebody is living in doctrinal chaos or they're entering into a, 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 the pursuit of, of study in, in, a, in a fashion that is going to lead them astray or they're flirting with heresy, as some of our friends have been known to do, and, and the ministry and health of the local church might be in jeopardy, then I think we should seek God for grace and go and talk to those people in a loving fashion and bring them back to the truth. That's exactly what he's talking about. None of us does that naturally, though, do we? There aren't many people that really go, oh, good, another chance to confront somebody. None of us really like to confront people with truth. I mean... I'd rather stick a fork in my eye. I, I, I'd rather have a root canal done without any freezing than to, than to go to somebody and say, you know what, you're wrong. You're, you're, you're just dead wrong. Well, hopefully you do it in other words but in other spirit. But you know what I'm saying? Do you get my drift? Follow my thinking? Understand what I'm talking about? You want me to keep going? Okay. Almost none of us do that naturally. But the desire for personal comfort... And the fear of conflict, which hinder us from confronting people in love with truth, that does not spring from faith in Christ. That fear does not, does not it is not the fruit of the Spirit. They, that's a product of the flesh. We're more afraid of man than we are obedient to God. And that's a dangerous place for us to be. Second implication that comes from verses 1 and 2 is that we ought to care about, we ought to care about doctrinal unity, especially, especially on points that are crucial. It, it ought to bother us that there is so much uh, division and so much disunity in the church over matters of important doctrine. I'm talking about important doctrine. There will always be stuff on the fringe, you know, that, that's a matter of opinion. I'm not talking about the gray areas. I'm talking about those fundamental, foundational doctrines in which there ought to be unity. Because what you believe will shape your life. Right? What, what you believe shapes your life. It, it, what you believe shapes your behavior, or at least it ought to. <laughs> What you believe will shape your, your marriage and, and your parenting and it will shape your giving and it will shape your, your, your it will shape what you think about the future for heaven's sake, quite literally. So doctrine matters. What we believe and, and what we teach make a difference. That's why we make much of the Bible here. It, it, it matters. 
And so what are the points that are most crucial? Well, I'm glad you asked. Have a look at this short video clip. We confess the mystery and wonder of God made flesh and rejoice in our great salvation through Jesus Christ our Lord. With the Father and the Holy Spirit, the Son created all things, sustains all things, and makes all things new. Truly God, he became truly man. Two natures in one person. He was born of the Virgin Mary and lived among us, crucified, dead, and buried. He rose on the third day, ascended to heaven, and will come again in glory and judgment. For us, he kept the law, atoned for sin, and satisfied God's wrath. He took our filthy rags and gave us his righteous robe. He is our prophet, priest, and king. Building his church, interceding for us, and reigning over all things. Jesus Christ is Lord. We praise his holy name forever. Amen. 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 It seems to me that we, we ought to be in, in sync when it comes to those kinds of foundational biblical truths like Christology, who Jesus was and what he accomplished for us. There ought to be unity. We ought to be on the same page. The inspiration and authority of Scripture is another one. That, that shouldn't be so hard to agree on, and yet there is such disagreement in the broader church. Salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, is another one. Doctrine matters. What we believe and what we teach really matters. So next we want to examine what was at stake in this meeting in Jerusalem that Paul and Barnabas and Titus attended. It was nothing less, nothing less than the preservation of the gospel. In verses 3 through 5, Paul describes his encounter with these false brothers in Jerusalem. He said, but, but even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery... To them we did not yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. I'm so glad for guys like the Apostle Paul who, who aren't blown by every wind of doctrine to and fro. Oh, that sounds like a good idea. Let's try that for a while. See how that works. There are false brothers in the church, Paul says. False brothers. So they are actually believers in Jesus Christ who have now taken on false teaching and they're believing and living a lie. These guys are in trouble. They're in trouble. And the truth of the gospel is on the line, Paul says. But he did not yield to them for even a moment. He stood up for the truth and we have benefited 
from his tenacity all these years later. Will our grandkids say the same thing about us? We benefited from their tenacity. Their willingness to stand up and speak the truth and teach the truth and preach the truth. I hope so. See, if Paul had given in to the demands of these false brothers, the gospel would have been destroyed. That's, that's why this is so important. If he had given in, if he had compromised, then the gospel as we know it and as he knew it would have been destroyed. The preservation of the gospel is at stake and the stakes could not have been higher. It says in Romans 3.28, For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. And Romans 5.1, let's read this verse out loud together. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the gospel. And Romans 6.10, for the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. Jesus died once for all. And we have right standing before God today by faith alone, in Christ alone, by grace alone. And, and the goal, you see, the goal is to preserve that truth for our kids and our grandkids and our great-grandkids should Jesus tarry. That's the goal. We want to preserve this gospel. In 1952, Florence... Chadwick swam 26 miles from the coast of, of, of California to Catalina Island. That was, her, that was her goal. But after 15 hours, a very heavy fog settled in and she became disoriented and she quit. Later on, Chadwick realized that she had quit just one mile short of her goal. One mile. She only had one mile to go. 15 miles. She swam 14 miles and quit. Two months later, she tried it again. And again, a heavy fog settled in. But this time, she said, I kept my mind on the goal. I kept picturing the shoreline of Catalina Island. She became the first woman ever to swim that body of water. And so, my friends, when, when people question your faith or make, or make fun of your faith or they try to distort the gospel some way, or tell you that all roads do lead to heaven, or that it doesn't really matter what you believe as long as you are sincere, keep this goal in mind. The preservation of the biblical gospel. You have something to give to your kids and your grandkids with that. Don't yield even for a moment. Please, I beg you, Now back to this meeting that Paul was attending in Jerusalem. After much discussion, the verdict of the meeting was very heartwarming. Extremely so. Let's welcome our brothers. The, the leaders in Jerusalem decided to welcome these brothers in Christ who were making so much fuss about salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, up, quite apart from circumcision and all the Old Testament works of the law. 
And it was crucial, you see, for, for Paul to take Titus along because Titus was a living, breathing, heart-pumping, genuine Gentile who hadn't been circumcised. But he was a believer in Jesus. And he was not a Jew. He was a Gentile just like us. Well, there might be a few uh, you know, Jews by birth in our midst today, but, but most of us are Gentiles, non-Jews. Titus was one of us. The false brothers who had infiltrated the church in Galatia would have insisted that Titus needed to be circumcised in addition to his faith in Jesus. Yeah, we're glad that he came to faith in Jesus, but he also he needs to get cut. He, he needs to be circumcised because that's the, the way of the law of Moses and, and that's the way it is. So this was a test case. Paul, not by mistake, but purposely took Titus to this meeting knowing what the meeting was about. He took a Greek, an uncircumcised Gentile. Titus was a believer in Jesus. That much was very clear, but he was also a non-Jew. He was a Gentile. And so Paul wanted to know, okay, he's a believer in Jesus. You recognize that. Will you now welcome him or not? Is he welcome in the church in Jerusalem or not? Paul wanted to know. There was a lot riding on this decision. Can you see that? A lot riding on this. And they rose to the occasion. They rose to the occasion. They did not insist that Titus be circumcised. Yay, way to go, guys! Instead, they welcome him as one who had been cleansed spiritually by the blood of Christ through faith. And you know, this is so instructive. This wasn't just an historical event. This has implications for us today. Greatly. It's so helpful because, you know, over the years, I have seen people come to faith in Jesus and give, give solid, solid testimony and evidence of their newfound faith in Jesus Christ only to have other I'm assuming well-intentioned Christians come along and impose all kinds of rules and regulations upon these new believers things that have nothing to do with salvation I better move on before I step on toes. <laughs> Furthermore, as verses 7 through 10 indicate, when, when they saw that Paul had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, like Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, the Jews, Paul was entrusted with the gospel for the Gentiles, they said, hey, welcome! You're part of us too! You're not from our church here in Jerusalem, but, but we welcome you. And, and it, the scripture says that they welcomed them with the right hand of fellowship. Kind of a technical term in the New Testament that indicated that there was some sort of formal right of, of reception. They extended the right hand of fellowship. They welcomed them in as part of the body of Christ. And they blessed them and they blessed their ministry as a result. This is the kind of atmosphere. This is the kind of environment this is the kind of culture that we want to see here at the gathering. Amen? Amen? We want to welcome people 
And there will be all kinds of social and cultural differences between us. In fact, some of us, if it weren't, wasn't for Christ and if it wasn't for the, for the church, we would be natural enemies. Right? I mean, our, our, our likes, our dislikes, you know, our, 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 our behavior, our, our lifestyles, uh, cultural adherences that we have apart from Christ, we'd be natural enemies. But because of Christ, we're, we're one. We're one in the family. And, and, and so there will continue to be differences. There will continue to be social and cultural differences between us, like there were between Titus and the church in Jerusalem. Non-Jew, uncircumcised Titus, a Greek, now part of the church here in Jerusalem, welcomed, loved by these brothers who are circumcised Jews who come to faith in Christ. Social and cultural differences? Huh! By the boatload. And yet they were one in Christ. So we want people to feel welcome here. Amen? We want them to feel like they, they, they and, and know that God loves them. We want that desperately. They may not have it all together spiritually when they, when they arrive. They may be struggling with life. They may have, you know, old habits that are clinging on hard and won't let go. They, they might... It might be messy. They might be writhing in personal pain or struggling with a disease or whatever. When they, but, but they're welcome here. They're welcome here. We ought to shout it out in the streets and from the, well, there aren't mountaintops, from the riverbank of Windsor. And we will end, and we will give the Holy Spirit all the room and all the time he needs to change them according to his image and not ours. You agree with that? Yeah. However, that being said, we will not compromise the gospel or the unity of our church just so people feel comfortable here. It's pretty quiet in here. Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) Amen. Yes, we will be welcoming and loving, but we will also guard the gospel, preserve the gospel. See, here's the thing. Present deviations from the truth of the gospel produce tomorrow's heretics and heresies. That's why Paul was completely unwilling to yield to these Judaizers for even a moment. Because he realized, he realized that the smallest deviation today results in heresy and heretics tomorrow. So yes, of course, we will extend the right hand of fellowship. Yes, of course, we will be loving and kind and warm and welcoming all of the time, all of the time. And, they're not competing realities, so I use the word and, not but. And, we will protect the flock of God under our care. Now, let's have a look at the outcome of that verdict. We will see clearly in this text that the verdict given in Jerusalem, welcoming the brothers, brought a greater freedom to the church. (laughs) Greater freedom. These so-called false brothers who had infiltrated the church wanted to bring these brothers into slavery again. 
bring them back into spiritual bondage by insisting that everybody obey the Jewish laws and the Jewish rituals and especially the men get circumcised. And you know the church has had its share of bondage makers over the years, hasn't it? Yeah. You can't wear that. You can't say that. You can't go there. Need to cut your hair. Need to raise your hem. Need to get rid of those tattoos. Don't shop there. Don't listen to that. Don't watch that. These things cannot bring salvation. They might have something to do with your holiness or sanctification later on, but they add nothing to salvation. None of those things can rescue people from sin. Only God's grace through faith alone in Christ alone can do that. That's it. We cannot impose our cultural and, and social preferences on people and say it's biblical. Church music style. And what we wear to church on Sunday has more to do with cultural and social preferences than it has to do with the Bible. God works in different ways with different people in different parts of the world. I have an elderly friend who's long since retired who recalls the days in the part of the world in which he worked when people started coming to faith in Jesus Christ. I mean, this was, this was a tribal people who had worn gourds and only the ladies only wore grass skirts so the top was, well, topless. And, and, and they got people at home to send truckloads of underwear and, and brassieres and, and pants and skirts and the tribes ended up using them to start fires with. <laughs> Wasn't it all part of their culture? Wasn't it all part of their, their social past? So here we want to take, we want to impose, and that's just one example, you know, modernize it to the 21st century, because that was last century. Um, what are the things that we impose on people and say this is, this is essential in order for you to be saved? There's a, the list is long. And Paul said, nope. There is no list. There is no list. It's by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That's how we're saved. So please, let's not be putting people back into bondage with our list of personal preferences. Because that's all they are. And I have preferences. I, I admit it. But I know they're just personal preferences and I have no right to insist on anybody else doing it or saying it or singing it or wearing it like I do. I don't have any right. So when we experience what I call a largeness in God's work through the Holy Spirit, we're then free to pursue fullness in Christ. And I think that's what happened in Galatia. They, they realized that God was at work in Titus's life. 
they realized that Titus was really uh, truly soundly converted to faith in Jesus Christ and he was growing in grace. They realized that. They could see that. There were a ton of differences between them socially and culturally, but they realized they didn't have any right or any authority to impose circumcision on him. So they backed off. They realized that tradition and rituals, while they might have their place in a culture, in a society, they have nothing to do with salvation. Salvation comes by grace, not by circumcision, and not by Holy First Communion, and not by baptism, or not by wearing a suit on Sunday. It doesn't come by any of those things. They experienced a largeness in God's work, and as a result, they experienced a greater freedom in their own life and in the life of the church. So people were able to come to church on Sunday morning without, you know, checking over their shoulder or checking the ham, you know, and all that stuff that we impose. Because the true gospel brings liberty. The, the gospel brings freedom to be who God wants us to be. And to be a church that is set on fire with the truth of the gospel and giving lots of room to the Holy Spirit to change lives. Romans 8.2 For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free (laughs) in Christ Jesus. I feel a follow-up sermon coming on already. Free to do what? Free to do what? Free to become bond servants of Jesus Christ. Free to obey the Word of God and the moral law of God out of joy and out of a place of rescue and restoration and salvation, not out of a sense of obligation. But... That's a sermon for another day. When you and I truly embrace the gospel of grace, then we are set free, set free from the law of sin and death. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. He sets us free. Let's pray. Father, this morning we want to say thank you from the very depths of our being for this gospel of grace. And yes, there are recovering Pharisees among us who have been raised in religious or spiritual or even Christian traditions that focus more on keeping the rules and regulations than they do on living and walking in grace. And so, Father, please be patient with us as we all learn how to walk and talk and live according to the grace of God. Because yes, it, it's, it's necessary for salvation, but this gospel of grace is absolutely critical for every day of our saved lives. And we thank you that the gospel is not just for entry into the Christian life, but for sustaining the Christian life. And we thank you, Jesus, that your life and death and resurrection are the bedrock foundation of our faith today. Thank you, Jesus. We give thanks to you and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.